Yahweh saw the great wickedness of the people of the earth, that the thoughts in their hearts fashioned nothing but evil. Yahweh was sorry that humankind had been created on earth. It pained God's heart. Yahweh said, I will wipe this human race that I have created from the face of the earth, not only the humans, but also the animals, the reptiles, and the birds of the heavens. I am sorry I ever made them. I will destroy them and the earth as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you looking for some good news this morning? Welcome to Lent, I guess. We answer the story this morning of a world gone wrong, a humanity hopelessly corrupt, and a God lacking the power or creativity perhaps to do anything about it other than scrap the whole project and start over from the beginning. You folks who have been around for a while may recognize these as the opening lines of the story of Noah and the Great Flood. Stories of the Bible, Noah and the Flood. This is Noah. Hey! Noah was a good man who tried to do the right thing. Yeah! But in the time when Noah lived, he was the only man on earth who was doing the right thing. All the other people on earth were doing evil things and hurting each other. This made God very sad. So God said that he was going to send a flood to the earth that would destroy every living thing on earth because he was sorry he ever made them. But God decided to save Noah and his family. God told Noah to build a boat and fill it with two of every kind of animal and bird. Colors, birds, moss, okay, all here. Noah did just that, and then Noah and his whole family boarded the boat and waited for the flood to come. The rain fell hard for 40 days and 40 nights. Water covered the whole earth, and the boat floated safely on the surface. Water covered even the highest mountains on earth, but Noah and his family were saved. God remembered Noah and all the animals on the boat. God sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the flood began to go away. After five months, the boat came to rest on a mountaintop. A few months later, the other mountains could be seen. Forty days later, Noah opened a window and released a raven. The bird flew back and forth until the flood had dried up. He also sent a dove out to see if it could find dry ground. But the dove couldn't find a place to land because there was still water on the ground. So the dove returned to the boat. Oh, hello again. After another seven days, Noah sent the dove out again. This time, it came back with an olive leaf. Oh, good girl. So Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. A week later, he sent the dove out again, and it didn't come back. So many months after the flood began, Noah opened the covering of the boat and saw that the ground was drying. He waited two more months, and at last, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Leave the boat, all of you. Release the animals so they can be fruitful, 
and multiply throughout the earth. Okay. So Noah, his family, and all the animals finally left the boat. See ya. Noah built an altar to the Lord to make a sacrifice to God. God was pleased with Noah's offering and said to himself that he would never again destroy every living thing on earth. God blessed Noah and his sons and promised them that he would never send another flood. He gave them the rainbow in the sky as a sign of this promise to Noah, his family, and all of mankind. That's so cute and fairly accurate to the biblical account with a bit of artistic license. But in spite of this happy ending, this is not a children's story, not really. It's actually a very different kind of story than we're used to reading in the Bible entirely. Most Bible stories go something like this. First, humans have a problem, often because of something that they've done. Then humans encounter God who does something to save them. And finally, humans are changed because of this encounter. That's the pattern. Sometimes it's the negative version of that where God creates the trouble or tries to help, help by allowing the humans to suffer the consequences of their actions. And sometimes the humans are not changed and that becomes a lesson. Sometimes we, the readers, are the object of the story. We're the ones who are supposed to learn the lesson and be changed. The pattern holds though that God is the active character and the humans are the ones who are changed. But in this story of the great flood, that gets flipped around. In this story, God is the one with the problem. And through an encounter with a particular human, by the end of the story, it is God who has changed. Controversial idea for some of us. I'll explain. But first, let's talk about Enlil, Lord of the Storm, chief among gods of the ancient Sumerians and later worshiped by the Akkadians and Babylonians, known to modern scholars through the Epic of Gilgamesh. Don't feel too badly if you're unfamiliar with that one. Enlil was the Lord of the Storm with a temper to match. His most famous story is of the time he got frustrated with the overpopulation of the earth. Those blasted humans, there were so many of them and they were making so much noise that Enlil was not able to sleep. And in his sleep deprived rage, he unleashed a storm with so much rain that flooded the whole earth and destroyed all of humanity. Except for one man, Utnapishtim, Utnapishtim received a warning from another god in advance of the storm and was able to build a boat and save his family. Enlil was outraged that some humans had escaped his wrath, but Utnapishtim and his family bowed down and pledged their allegiance to Enlil, and Enlil granted Utnapishtim immortality in recognition of his cleverness and his loyalty. Now I could have all kinds of fun drawing parallels between those two flood stories, but for today, I'll just point out that at the start of the biblical version, Yahweh seems an awfully lot like Enlil. Frustrated by humanity, outraged by their behavior, 
angry that they aren't doing what Yahweh intended for them to do. Now, there's a big difference between Yahweh's complaint about unrestrained violence and Enlil's complaint about excessive noise and not being able to sleep. But really, that's a difference of degree. Some may argue that Yahweh's anger against evil is justified. But why now, at this point? There's been evil before in humanity. Why let Cain the murderer go free into exile, but condemn all of life to extinction at this point? Why is this the time when enough is enough? There's also some degree of complicity in this trouble, no? If all of creation is evil, even to the very thoughts of their hearts, well then what does that say about the Creator? And again, even if Yahweh is justified in his anger against humanity and their evil, how does that warrant the destruction of everything else? It must be quite a limited God who cannot be any more specific in his punishment than Enlil, the storm god. That's not a very pretty picture of Yahweh. A bit of an arbitrary, vindictive judge, a flawed artist, perhaps, a limited redeemer at best. If this is who God is, why would anyone want to serve a God like that? Actually, the best character in this story to this point is Noah, the human. There's some poetic wordplay going on in the Hebrew version of this story. Humanity is described as evil, or more specifically, corrupt. The humans were diminished, decaying, corrupted versions of who they thought, who they were meant to be. They weren't the evil violence of a malicious villain, but the thoughtless damage of an off-balance pottery wheel. Humanity was out of balance, the evil was too much, and that wobble was distorting and bringing destruction into everything else. Everything else except for Noah. Noah was righteous, just, the story says right at the beginning. Not righteous in the perfect, pure sense that we sometimes have. As we see later, Noah has his flaws as well. But where the rest of humanity was corrupt and off-center, Noah was in balance, even his flaws, I'd say. That's what his name means, at rest, settled, satisfied, grounded. Noah was the unanxious presence in the middle of the storm. When Noah learned of the coming flood, he responded with careful preparations. When God asked Noah to do the impossible, he rolled up his sleeves and got to work. When the storm came, his faith remained. In the story, it is this one human who is living out of the groundedness and centeredness that turns out to be stronger than the storm, that rises above the flood. While Yahweh appears reactive and vindictive, Noah is the one who is responsive, collected, measured, and whole, at rest. Can you see how this story is playing with the expectations of the audience? Who is the hero and who is the antagonist in this story? God is the one with the power, but the human, Noah, is the one at rest, the one who cannot be shaken. 
Noah saves God's creation. Noah is the redeemer in this story. And again, it is God who is changed by this encounter. The climax of the story comes as Noah's ark rests on the mountain. Finally, as we saw, the floodwaters recede and the ground dries. When Noah and his family get off the boat, their first move is to build an altar to Yahweh, to make sacrifices intending to keep their God happy which seems a wise move, given how Yahweh reacted the last time humans failed to do what God wanted. Yahweh was pleased with Noah's offering, the story says. But this is where the story turns. I mean, what would you expect God to say at this point? The last creation attempt had failed miserably. Humanity had disobeyed and went its own way, and Yahweh had punished them. What do parents and teachers usually say after a punishment is over? Don't ever do that again! I mean, deep breath, Billy. I know you made a mistake, and I forgive you. And now let's talk about some strategies we might try to get a better result next time. In other words, don't ever do that again. But to everyone's surprise, in the flood story... Yahweh doesn't give Noah a lecture, doesn't give him a warning or a set of instructions, doesn't try to teach him a lesson at all. Instead, Yahweh says, I will never again curse the ground because of humanity. Even though they lean towards evil from their youngest days, I will never again destroy every living creature as I have done. In other words, I won't do that again. Somehow it is Yahweh who has learned the lesson here. The teachable moment lands on the opposite of what we expect. God doesn't give Noah a set of commands to follow, doesn't demand obedience in order to earn God's favor. And unlike Enlil, who rewarded the one human he found to be trustworthy and loyal, Yahweh doesn't just reward Noah. Yahweh makes the covenant the reward with all of humanity and all of creation. Because this covenant has nothing to do with Noah's character, it is Yahweh, their character, who is trustworthy and loyal. And that's what matters. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Consistent, compassionate, faithful, and redemptive, That is who Yahweh is revealed to be. And that's a very significant difference from who Yahweh appeared to be at the start of the story. Now, I don't really think that God had a complete personality change because of the flood and the faithfulness of Noah. What is changing in this story is not who God is, but it's the storyteller's understanding of who God is. The unpredictable, vindictive, limited God at the beginning of the story was like Enlil. That was what the the ancients expected of their gods. They lived in a world that was like that, unpredictable, vindictive, and limited. That's what they knew, and that's what they expected from the gods. Rather than fighting that, the storyteller lets the audience start there, but then nudges them along the way. You're right, the world is full of violence and selfishness. But look at Noah. It doesn't have to be that way. 
there is a way to live in the middle of that that is grounded and whole and just. You're right, there are floods sometimes and the innocent get caught up in that. But look, there's also an ark. There's something, someone, maybe even Yahweh, that cares about the creation, the plants and the animals, the preservation of life. And you're right, the world is full of death and destruction. But look, there's a rainbow. There is new life that comes. Yahweh has not abandoned us to annihilation. Yes, there is much we don't understand. The chaos of the deep waters is overwhelming. But look, there is a covenant, a promise, a God who is for us, who meets us in the depths and carries us through. As those who hear the story follow those nudges, a whole new way of seeing emerges, revealing Yahweh as she has been all along. Not denying the reality of the corruption and destruction of the world, but alongside that, like Noah, offering a different way of seeing and being. From the beginning, God has always been about the path of Noah, the path of wholeness, justice, and rest. Throughout this season of Lent, the centerpiece of our services will be the ritual of communion. If you have a bit of bread and juice or whatever you happen to have with you, now is the time to have that ready. And if not, please do join in the ritual in whatever way you are able. When Noah and his family came out of the ark, they participated in the ancient ritual of blood sacrifice. They built an altar of stone, killed and burned some of their best animals as a sacrifice to show their dedication to God. But where Yahweh, where Noah and their family and his family intended to show their commitment to Yahweh, instead Yahweh turned the ritual around and made it about Yahweh's commitment to them. They came to give a sacrifice. Instead, they received a blessing of love and abundance and covenant promise. We no, no longer use blood sacrifice in our religion, thankfully. But we do have our own ritual of covenant, the celebration of communion. And we each have our own reasons for coming, our needs and fears, our thanks and offerings, our obligations, our desperation, our baggage, our guilt. But like Noah, when we come to this altar, what we find is that God is not here to ask anything of us. God is here to show us who God is. Pray with me the prayer of confession and assurance. We have heard that you are present in the depths, and we have come to see if it is really true. Source of life, we call to you from the depths of our hearts. It's true that we have been afraid to dive into the deep waters. We have stayed too close to the surface, kept too closely to ourselves, gotten out of balance, given in to our fears. And yet, faithful or not, ready or not, here we are, wading into the deep waters of communion. Hear our call and answer us from the depths of your unfailing love. Brothers and sisters, 
on the night before Jesus was crucified, he shared a meal together with his friends. During that meal, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he blessed it and broke it and shared it among them. Creator God, giver of all good things, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for providing to us the things we need for strength and health, for community, for meaning and purpose. Whether we can see it or not, whether we understand or not, your good gifts nourish and sustain us. For this we are grateful. Amen. This bread, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and remember. That same night, Jesus also took a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, again, he shared it together with his friends. Let's pray. God of life, savior of the world, thank you for your gift of love. We put our trust in your covenant promise that life is stronger than death. Good is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hate. Give us the will and strength to follow in your way to pour out our lives in right relationship with our world as you poured out your life for us and into us. Amen. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, Jesus said. This is my blood poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. And now let's continue with the sermon, part B. So then, if Yahweh is not the unpredictable, punitive God of the first part of the story, if Yahweh is the God of the unconditional covenant, then who are we? What does it mean to be God's people, covenant people? The vision that Yahweh lays out for Noah and his family after the flood is the vision of shalom, right relationships. In the blessing of the covenant, God tells Noah and his family to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, echoes of the creation story. And this time as well, God reminds humanity that we are at the top of the food chain. All the other creatures will fear us. We hold their lives in our hands. But though we can make food of anything, this comes with responsibility. Do not waste the blood of life, God says to Noah. All things die, including you, and every death will be called to account. For I hereby establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, cattle, and the earth's wildlife, everything that came out of the ark, everything that lives on the earth. The covenant is not just for us. The covenant is with everything. 
Life does not exist for me. My life exists as part of everything else. That kind of covenant way of life is hard to explain through the words of a sermon. It's something that needs to be experienced and practiced. My family spent a morning at Wanaskewin this week, and I was impressed by some of the displays that have been developed there since, I, since the last time I visited. The spirit of that place speaks deeply to what covenant life looks like, I think. The respect for the land, the awareness of the sacred in the various seasons, the partnership with and learning from the buffalo and other animals, the gratitude for all of life and humanity's humble place within it. If you haven't been to Wanaskewin for a while, I definitely recommend spending some time there and thinking about this covenant way of life. I think that holistic approach was what was missing for humanity at the start of the story. The off-balance, the corruption that was the, was the loss of that communal perspective. It's the destruction that comes when one part of the system elevates its own interests above the good of the whole. And the antidote to that was the life of Noah, whose name and life again bear witness to rest, contentment, gentle service. And so in the end, I don't think this story is a warning so much as an invitation. Why would we want to live out of balance? Why would we want to live as those whose lives brought on their own destruction? The way of the covenant is a better way for everyone. I love this creative addition to the flood story by Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. A prayer for the earth, the story of Naamah, Noah's wife. Naamah was Noah's wife, and why was she called Naamah? Because her deeds were ne'amim, pleasing, from the ancient Jewish Midrash tradition on the book of Genesis. In the time when the world was still young, plants and animals and people filled all creation. In Earth's garden, there lived a man named Noah and a woman named Naamah. Noah and Naamah were kind and loving and walked in God's ways. But Noah, God said to Noah and Naamah, I have seen great wickedness on the earth. There is too much hate in people's hearts, but your hearts are good. You can help me begin again. To Noah, God said, make an ark for your family and for two of every animal that lives on this earth, birds and cattle and creeping things of every kind. And to Naamah, God said, walk across the land and gather the seeds of all the flowers and all the trees. Take two of every kind of living plant and bring each onto the ark. They shall not be for food, but they shall be your garden to tend and to keep. Naamah did as God commanded. She journeyed into the forest and carefully gathered the spores from the moss that made a carpet at her feet. She placed them in the cool, deep pockets of her apron, away from the light of the sun. She picked acorns from the oak trees and nuts from the pecan and pistachio. The winged seeds of the maples snapped under the gentle pull of her hands. She carefully lifted the seedlings of the cedar and the cypress, the persimmon and plum. Naamah walked right past the dandelions, pretending not to notice their feathery yellow heads sprouting over the grass. Naamah, 
God called, gather seeds of every living plant. And Naamah knew that God meant the dandelions too. Reluctantly, she placed their seeds in her pockets with all the others. Sunflowers and buttercups, orchids and jasmine, dahlias and daffodils, lilies and lavender. When Naamah had collected the seeds and seedlings of every living plant, she brought them onto the ark and arranged every plant and seed, each in its special place. Then she made a sign that read, Naamah's garden. These plants are not for food. Then the sun disappeared. Lightning flashed and thunder boomed. Dark clouds filled the sky and rain poured from the heavens until the waters covered all the lime green aspens and the emerald green pines. Noah and Naamah looked out over the waters and were sad for all that had been destroyed. For 40 days and 40 nights, the skies never brightened and the rains never ceased. After 40 days, the rains ceased and a rushing wind rolled over the waters. Black sky softened into shades of blue. After many days, the waters decreased and finally the ground was dry and firm. Noah led the animals from the ark, some prancing, some flying, some slithering and crawling. And Naamah carefully placed all the seeds and seedlings in the deep pockets of her apron. She knelt down and made small cradles in the soft, damp earth in which to plant. She placed downy tufts of milkweed seeds in her palms and held them up to the sky to let the wind carry them in all directions. She took off her sandals and let her feet sink into the soft soil. She sighed with delight at the touch of the land, and she worked without rest. God saw all that Naamah had planted, and God said, Because of your great love for the earth, I will make you guardian of all living plants, and I will call you Emzerah, mother of seed. For a moment, God gave Naamah the vision to see from one end of the earth to the other. She saw how the seeds were carried great distances and how they had landed safely on the soft ground. And she saw, as she had feared, that the dandelions were everywhere. Naamah was pleased to be surrounded by all the living plants, even the dandelions. She lay down in a grassy meadow, and with each breath she smelled lilies and lavender and mint. A gentle wind blew through the gr grasses, and it sounded as if the meadow was whispering a prayer. And Naamah slept in the quiet of growing things. <laughs>